Welcome everybody to the Couple of Nurses podcast. This is a Cup of News edition. Just want to thank everybody for your time. If you guys follow us, make sure to give us the likes on YouTube, Spotify. If you guys don't know that this has a video format as well, we do have some on YouTube. We also release some vlogs on YouTube. We're on all platforms, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and all literally all listening platforms. Stitcher. Are we still on Stitcher? We are. We are still on Stitcher. And Google Play. Yeah, Stitcher's not very, very big. Google Play isn't very big either. But, nope. but we still we like to we like to dip our toes everywhere. So we're on those platforms as well. And today another good episode. What's going on, Matt? Thank you for that introduction. And we are frontlinewarriors.com, cupandnurse.com for any announcements and up-to-date news. So today we're going to talk about colorectal screenings, how the prevalence of colon cancer has increased. So screenings have went from age 50 to 45 recommendations now. And sleep aid, there are studies that are linking it to increased chances of early onset dementia yeah, and Alzheimer's. Looked, when we looked into this, some of the numbers that we came up with are, are pretty mind-blowing. I think the main reason that there has been an increase in colorectal cancer is because I feel like when people hear that the recommended screening is at age 50, they put it off for a few years. They do. So 50, not, 50 plus 10. Right. So some people get their first screen done at 55, at 60. So I think it's a good idea to push these guidelines back five years. So now maybe actually people are going to be at the age of 45 and actually thinking about getting a screening like this. Right. Instead of going in at age 50, they're going to be going in age like 48 or 49. Compared to before, sorry, <laughs> it's burped a little bit. Sorry, compared to before where people were coming at 55, 60, but the recommendation actually was to be there at age of 50. Right, especially if you look at like the Duke staging. So like if you catch colon cancer early, the chances of actually surviving are very high. Mm -hmm. Like for example, stage one is a 90% survival rate for a five-year chance. But if you go to stage three, you already have a 30% survival rate like in five years. So mm -hmm. you really, it's the whole point of all this is just catching it early. Mm -hmm. And there's two types of doing it. You could either get like a fit test, which is an occult blood sampling usually. They check the sample uh, fecally. Or you could get an examination, which is the colonoscopy. So there's two ways of doing it. I took my family members once. It was interesting. Same day surgery, basically. They give you a little bit of like fentanyl or verse set to kind of make you feel funny. Mm -hmm. And they just stick a tube and do the thing. Yeah, it does uh, seem like to be the most comfortable thing in the world. Sometimes when we give our patients enemas, I'm just like... Imagine if you had to get a screening like that, where it's right. going all the way through, through your colon, not just like an enema where it's X amount of inches. And it's never comfortable, man. It's never, never comfortable. And, you know, the patient uncomfortable. You just, you just have to do it, get over with, and, and hopefully it works for the first time. Right. Yeah, but why we initially did this, did this episode about colorectal cancer, cancer is because we've seen, the studies are showing that there has been an increase in about 51% of cases of colorectal cancer. And they're estimating that by 2030, there's going to be another 10% increase of colorectal yeah. cancer. That's why we decided to get this topic some word, just so people are aware that, hey, this is an ongoing issue. And what we, even, what we even saw that was even more interesting is that there really isn't one specific link to colorectal cancer. No. It's not genetic. Actually, minority of a genetic. I think only like 8 to 12% of cases are, are due to genetics. Yeah, so a small portion of colon mm -hmm. cancer, only like 5% are actually like heterary. Jeez, I'm blanking on the word here. Like, which is like lynched uh, syndrome, mm -hmm. which is linked to mutations and like DNA replications. Mm -hmm. And another 20% is linked to family history. Yeah, but, but with the, I read into the family history part. But with the family history part is they're not sure if the family history 
has anything to do with the way their diet is or is it hereditary? Yeah, is it genetic mm-hmm. or is it environmental lifestyle that's causing the culprit? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Right, when taking the family into consideration. Yeah. And some people like that are at risk for is usually personal history of colon cancer, such as polyps, if your family had polyps, such as like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, or suspected like um, colon cancers, such as polyps, there's the Lynch, there's the non-polyps colon cancers, the different kinds. And even if you had an x-ray before and had some radiation, you had a KUB like abdominal ones, any radiation x-ray has your an increased chance of getting colon mm-hmm. cancer. Yeah. And then another crazy stat that we look into is that I believe it was Hispanics and African-Americans were at a higher rate of developing colon cancer. Yeah. So the thing with these stats and with these research is showing that there's an increase in prevalence of colon cancer, right? This is what is evidence is pointing to is that there is an increase for sure. hundred percent, there's an increase, but we still have no clue where it's coming from. Numbers are showing that there's an increase, but we don't know why and from where and who's causing it, and why it's happening. Yeah. So we're still at that phase where, is it genetic? Is it hereditary? Is it due to diet? Is it due to exercise, poor lifestyle? What is the, the main cause? And some of the points that they address in these studies is, like Matt said before, well, 5% was due to genetics. Yep. 20% was due to a family history that was either either linked to genetics or, or lifestyle. And then the other 75% is, is unknown. Right, yeah, so something we we're we we're doing something happening. that's giving us this cancer. It has to be. Is it, it might be the food that we eat that we're not we're not sure, and nobody wants to, to admit. Is it lack of exercise? Is it is obesity causing all these issues? Because it seems like the two main things that are still on the rise are obesity and diabetes, and hypertension is, is the third one. Which is right? which is a inflammatory state, right? All of them. All of them. All, everything is inflammation. That's what it's linking to. I'm thinking, and there's also like you know we do topics about BPA and how that's affecting, you know, estrogen and hormones. There's just so much environmental things that we're consuming that we're barely aware of that's causing issues. We have to, like, take a step back Mm -hmm. and, like, figure it out. It's almost like when you have a bad diet, you have to, like, completely reset your diet and introduce foods one by one to see which food is causing that upset stomach. Jeez, I I wish we had, like, a mass reset to see what's causing issues, but we can't. Yeah, and they always have... Like that section, like med, Medline or Medscape, the, the section that always states lifestyle choices to decrease your risks. But that's always like somewhere small and, and on the bottom or lower portion. So yeah. to decrease your risk of colon cancer, colorectal cancer, you should stop smoking, limit alcohol, eat healthy, regular exercise, and maintain a healthy weight. So basically what it seems like is if you live a healthy lifestyle, your chances of getting colorectal cancer are decreased. Which, which is usually what we always point. The evidence is always exercise, lifestyle. Like, right. It's like, it's like a dead horse, but we like to, you know, always emphasize yeah. it. And because that's, the, that's, you should control as much aspects of your life that you can. You should control variables. If all variables are able to be controlled, why not optimize each variable? And that way your risk of getting these diseases, getting cancers, getting illnesses, getting diabetes, hypertension, obesity are minimized drastically because you're, you're maintaining an optimal balance of all these variables because, you know, they each have their own effect on it. Yeah. Because then, yes, of course, there is ish, there is times where you're genetically predisposed to these things and you can't do anything about that, right? So why focus on that? Just try to minimize the chance of that being activated, of that cancer being genetically activated in your system. I agree with you. And, you know, 
I always look at epigenetics to like be a giant culprit of things. So I feel like, yes, you're, you're right. If we don't like take that time to take care of our bodies and tell our, you know, tell our DNA, the, uh, the correct building blocks for the protein to create the messages, to replicate properly, to not cause mutations in these cancers, that is the golden ticket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And when it comes to testing, so a little bit of like medical background, when they do like stool tests, you either get a fit test every single year moving forward. If you're, you know, have a high chance, you could also get a high sensitivity fecal blood or cold test. We usually do that when it comes to our GI bleed patients. So when it comes to like colon cancer, especially on the right side, it takes longer for it to be diagnosed, right? So usually these patients, this tumor causes tumor is an angiogenesis mm-hmm. where there's so much vasculature to that tumor, so much blood supply that you start leaking blood into the, to the gut because the mesenteries are so damn vascular. And those cancers are always caught so late because that tumor has so much ability to grow before we catch it. Usually you're asymptomatic. You just get anemia because you keep feeding that tumor compared to like that left side. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of gut health, Matt and I have purchased Viomi. If you're not sure what Viomi is, we should probably do an episode on Viomi explaining why we did it, what the plan is to show, and how it works. So Viomi does is basically we took there's two tiers. There's one that's like a, just a stool sample, and one that's like stool and blood. So we had the higher tier where they get our stool sample and they get some of our blood, and they check certain genetic markers. They they, they check our, our our poop to see if the food that we're eating is leading us to have an inflamed gut and how our stool is shaped and whatever's in it, whatever they, they examine, supposed to tell us on what foods to eat, what foods to avoid, and how to basically optimize our diet. Yeah. But and then the blood sample tells us other genetic markers about, you know, how foods affect our blood and it's supposed to be a little bit more, more in depth. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how you could definitely study your metabolites from bacteria and then figure out what's going on. Hey, stop eating apples and tomatoes because tomatoes and apples contain this virus that are causing this microbial warfare in your gut that's causing inflammation. It's wild how deep that analysis goes because I did this last year, but I never did the finger stick. So it's going to be cool because we get to find out like our biological age. We get to find out like our mitochondrial health and all that. So yeah. But that's kind of spooky because now they have our our stool samples and our blood sample in their labs. So they know which, which blood has which blood Mateusz Slatrick has. Isn't it? Yeah. Like, this, is, this is their poop. This is their blood. They might have that data now. And who knows what kind of value it's going to have in the future. Mm-hmm. They might have you marked. What if they decide to sell, sell this to your insurance? What if your insurance is going to bait? What if we become such a health and data-driven society that our health is going to be mapped on a computer and insurance is going to look at that health mapping and give us the cost for our, our health insurance? Yeah. Imagine that's how it was. That's going to happen. It's totally possible. It's, it's already going to happen because... Like they do the swap for smoking, don't they? Yeah, they do. And yeah, if you, if you smoke, your insurance goes up in premiums already. So imagine how more, you know, in-depth it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And a little sneak peek, right? We, we talked about the World Economic, uh, Economic Reform that we're like creating an episode for. They want to focus more on home health, right? So imagine having these like toilets and everything armed where everything is going to be AI analyzing your urine or, hey, you're missing this. Hey, Piotr. Drink some potassium today, mm-hmm. or make sure you have a banana today. Your potassium is low in your urine. That's preventative. You know that could be a really good thing. Exactly. It just depends on who uses it, and how they use it. Just like really anything else. Yeah, it's it's a very scary slope because hopefully, like ethics catches up to things, mm-hmm. like always, when it comes to AI and everything, and 
that we have a kill switch on artificial intelligence because like it gets scary where yes it's for health but also it could like go a scary way yeah uh, when it comes to management of colon cancer so depending on where the cancer is you might have a surgical resection so usually they do colectomies if you if your cancer is like in the rectum area you want to heal that part after you cut it out so they do a colostomy for those that don't know that's uh basically your bowels coming out of your abdomen right to an ostomy which is an opening mm-hmm. and that's where poop goes mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's so crazy. I had a patient that had it ever since the age of sixteen. That's crazy. And he missed prom and everything from having ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Early on. That's such a drastic life change. And he was never married. Yeah. It could be just a whole self esteem thing, yeah. like for ages. It's so sad. It's very sad. It's a big thing to like accept. Imagine how that affects your love life, your sex life, like your friendships, your family. You're you're basically you're pooping in a bag continuously. It's nonstop. You can't hold it in. You can't wait to go to the bathroom, which is just yeah. there. Every time you eat, you're ex- expected to get full. Yeah, imagine going to the beach and you're just like throwing a football around and yeah. <laughs> there's just poop coming out of the side of your abdomen. Yeah. That's just things that you have to accept having one of those. Yeah, that's, wow, it's, 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 very, it's very drastic. And then also with the surgical management, they're also going to resect some lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. Depends on what happens with the cancer. So you guys know that cancer metastasizes, it sprouts, it hops on the lymphatic super highway and then it could spread to other organs so if you reach that stage metastasis based on a duke st- staging your your five-year survival is less than 10 percent that's why these screenings are so important because we want to prevent that late stage especially cancer developing on the right side of the the abdomen another important topic we wanted to address in this episode is the links with anticholinergics and alzheimer disease and dementia the most common anticholinergic medication that you're probably going to hear is basically Benadryl, right? It's anticholinergic. Yep. Helps you. You could say it makes you drowsy. A lot of people use it for allergies, for for you know seasonal issues, and some people actually use it to help them sleep. And the research is showing that if you use an anticholinergic consistently for three months or greater, that your chances of developing dementia or Alzheimer's are greatly increased. And that's a common over-the-counter medication that the elderly people use. I believe the, the chances of getting dementia above the age of, of 60 is like 30% five years after that. Yeah. So imagine having those, those risk factors and then you're doing anticholinergics every day for the last one year. Imagine that because it helped you sleep or whatever. Right. And it's so socially acceptable in like Western society to take anything. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I have a headache. I'm not going to drink as much water. I'll just take a pill. Same thing with sleep aids. I think, I don't know what the one in three, one in five, who knows based on studies, right? That we all have like a sleep disorder. We have like mental problems, financial stresses, relationships, and we can't fall asleep. We have that roommate that keeps on talking. We can't shut him down. So we take melatonin. That doesn't help. We take some NyQuil, some Benadryl. We want to get knocked out, like sedated. And mm-hmm. we don't know these long-term consequences. And now we're realizing that, hey, dementia's on the rise. Is it just food? Is it something else that's contributing to this? Because isn't that wild how just in the last like couple decades all this came to be? And now we're in the forefront where research is coming out and things are constantly changing. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't understand how people think that science is fixed. Yeah. <laughs> and it, uh, dementia, like the health care cost is $290 billion in the United States just in 2019 alone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is a big deal. Just, I don't know if you mentioned it in 2030. It's supposed to double. 
And 22% of the U.S. population, the age of 70 and above, has some cognitive impairment with dementia. Yeah. That's crazy, man. A lot of people don't know that these medications, we like to have them target certain things to produce certain, certain effects to better symptoms. But you got to understand that these anticholinergic drugs, they affect acetylcholine. So your acetylcholine is important in memory, in learning, in muscular contractions, as well as its antihistamine effects. But the thing is that we can't pinpoint, we can't pinpoint which acetylcholine is going to produce antihistamine actions, which one's going to produce all the other actions, right? We can't just target that. So this is what happens is that over time, the overuse of these medications, it starts to disrupt all these channels. And the more channels you disrupt, the higher chance of you disrupting more of them, obviously, and then those are going to produce greater effects. And another sign sometimes that you did not initially want just to cover that symptom. Yeah. Like you might have gotten rid of those, that, that sneezing, that snuff, that stuffy nose, and that fluid coming out of your eyes, but you also increase the chances of you getting Alzheimer's. So which one would you kind of, which one would you rather pay with? Just the runny nose or Alzheimer's? In the future. And we don't think like that because we trade these things for quick symptom management and it's wild how like the body works because it's always trying to restore its homeostasis Mm -hmm. and we're like taking these pills to do one effect and it's disrupting this it's like even like caffeine it's like we're trying to overclock our damn cpu to get that same stimulation yeah but maybe you're just tired or there's something else going on or your energy's too stuck in your damn brain we're just getting too depleted you know it's that short-term pleasure that we chase we want symptom relief right now Instant gratification. And the thing is, that goes with disease as well. Rather not treat the disease, rather treat the symptoms of the disease. And if you get rid of the symptoms of the disease, then that's enough for us. We're okay with having the disease. We're not okay with having the symptoms. And if we just pile on things that match the symptoms up until it builds up and builds up and builds up and we have like a stroke or a heart attack or something, you know, life-changing and altering, that's when we realize, hey, we messed up. We should have been treating the disease, not just the symptoms. Yeah. And like polypharmacy is one of those things because I, I'm just thinking about it right now. I was talking about homeostasis. Like imagine you're just polypharmacy, a patient constantly. That body doesn't know how to establish mm-hmm. its like equilibrium. Yeah. So back into the study, October 23rd, 2020, uh, they took a bunch of systematic literature reviews, long-term studies of three months or greater of anticholinergic uses. Uh, based on this study, they mostly were assessing it because it was a urology study, overactive uh, bladders. So patients that uh, were taking oxybutyn. Mm-hmm. So over, let's see, they analyzed 21 studies, and their conclusion showed that anticholinergics for three-month or greater use increased your chances of developing dementia for an average of 46% versus non-use of oxybutyn, mm-hmm. which is an anticholinergic. Yeah, the other study that we looked at took over took over 980,000 participants and found an association between benzodiazepines and development of dementia. So like your Xanaxes, those are your benzos. So a long time and progressive use of benzos is also showing ailing to, to Alzheimer's. A lot of people use benzos to, to cure their anxiety or help them with their sleep or just, or just you know, they just hang out, you know? And, yeah. it's, and some people have, it's a drug of choice. It's like, it's one of the party drugs too. Imagine if, if, if you, you know, partied hard with, with, with Xanax for, let's say, a year of your life. Imagine how, how mental toll it takes on you, especially if you're still developing. It's a, it's a giant hindrance. Yeah. Because this drug not only affects older people that messes their brains up and causes them to have Alzheimer's, but it also messes up 
teenager brains, younger kids' brains because it's messing with the develop the, the, their the developmental process yeah. and not developing the proper channels. That's why that's why like drugs and teenage use are is so dangerous because your brain is still developing. Yeah, and if it doesn't hit certain things and each process, guess what? You're not going to develop properly as as everybody else. Especially like taking Ritalin for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's what's one thing that is that is interesting is we're all put through the same educational system. Like imagine if you're a talented artist that you're going to be in the future. You can't sit through geometry class five days a week. It's just, just driving you crazy, but you have to. And these these poor kids, you know, get Ritalin just to stay there and be focused and pay attention. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's so sad. And we don't know the long-term, you know, side effects of depleting, you know, serotonin constantly. Like what if developmental ages show that hey if you deplete your serotonin for the first like 10 years of development it's never going to be the same now this patient is always at risk for depression yeah we don't know what we're doing yet but it's just hey it's a quick fix it's a doctor we have these standing orders this is how we treat Mm -hmm. and sometimes we never look back and evaluate especially in western culture we're just trucking forward and let's like fix things in a different way for example we just talked about colon rectal cancer, right? So the American Cancer Society is recommending to, you know, increase screenings from age fifty to now forty-five. Yes, where we could, you know, potentially catch cancer early, colon cancer. But what else can we do? Which is the preventative medicine that we're not really focusing on here to get, you know, to reverse that, to reverse those numbers, that to not be part of that statistic. Right. Yeah. Yeah, just imagine having a kid that's, that's developing. Their brain is trying to figure out their hormonal balance, their neurochemical balances, how much neuropinephrine they should release, how much dopamine, how much serotonin, how much adrenaline. And you introduce some of like Adderall, which is going to increase your dopamine. And your body gets used to getting dopamine from an outside source or from an outside source causing a production of it where it doesn't think it has to worry about having dopamine anymore. Yeah. And you're going to be for the rest of your life deficient dopamine so you're always going to be you're going to be lifelong dependent on something external to give you enough dopamine in your brain that's the people that are deficient like testosterone they require testosterone injections to maintain a normal testosterone level for an average male yeah imagine like somebody really young doing steroids and somehow the body switches off the production of testosterone and then they're lifelong dependent on testosterone injections and testosterone supplements because they fucked up their body at a young age because they decided to mess with these hormones and they got huge for a little bit and then in the long run it screwed them over. Yeah. It's those short-term pleasures that we always try to try to achieve and we're blind to these long-term effects. Of what else can happen. Of what else can happen, exactly. And you know, that's how life works. Um <laughs> it's it's like us being mm-hmm. you know, young. We started drinking early on. We're I don't like, want to say like Darwinism, like but 50- that's just how life works sometimes. It does, man. I mean it's survival of the fittest, yes and no, I believe it half half. And it's funny because, yeah, like, look at us. We were drinking early on a lot. Drink till you black out, till you throw up. It's just, yeah. it was stupid at the time. But, hey, now drinking can lead to dementia and there's all these risks. But yeah. at the time, we weren't just thinking. Yeah. But what, what can we do? We just arm ourselves with the time that we have now and the knowledge. So anybody that's listening, you know so much now about digestive health. Like in the past three episodes you listened to, mm. what are you going to do with that information? What if you have symptoms of frequent diarrhea or having a lot of bloating or maybe being, you know, lactose intolerant? Are you going to continue doing that? Are you going to change something? Like, 
th that's like one one of my goals always like podcasting i hope someone takes some value out of this and make some kind of incremental positive change in their life i'll be satisfied with this episode if that happens and the best time to start a change is now like stop thinking it's gonna be a best time to do things it's i'm gonna wait till monday because it's the first day of the week just just start something small now and just continue with it and just that one thing it's really some kind of improvement in your life and you know so you're not always complaining about some nonsense some bullshit like Take life by the ball sometimes and do something different, something about it. Yeah. You know, because no one's gonna do it for you. And, you know, ask for help of anything. Because a lot of times, you know, people need help and no one knows you need help if you don't bring it up. So it's like we're not mind readers yet. Yeah. Well, one day maybe. One day. Neuralink and stuff. Neuralink, yep. So just to summarize this, benzo, sleep, and dementia. We don't know the exact link between how this is being affected the mechanism action but we know that there is a positive correlation so we still need more research to establish these links just like we talked about the gut sometimes you know there's correlation but we can't we can't pinpoint it mm -hmm. so take everything with a grain of salt as always appreciate you guys listening hope you guys enjoyed the episode about colon cancer and early dementia have a great day great week see you guys next week stay humble Stay humble. Peace.